Hi there. This is Marie T. Russell, publisher of Inner Self. Welcome to this week's edition of Inner Self Magazine. Our Inner Self welcomes your inner self. One of the most debilitating human emotions or beliefs is powerlessness. The belief that we are powerless, that we can't do anything about something in particular, whether that something is the state of the world, things being the way they are, our health, our relationships, our jobs, our children, etc. Feeling or believing we are powerless is an energy drain or an energy thief. It's a bit like a light switch. On, we have power. Off, nothing. Powerless. And if we believe we are powerless, we have turned off the switch. The good thing, as with anything in life, is that we are alive, and thus we are not set in stone and we can change. We can find ways to flip the switch and reconnect with our innate power. We can put into practice ways to stop or limit energy drain or shutdown. This week, we start our exploration into reclaiming our power with the article Raise Your Vibes and Bring Light Back to Your World, written by Athena Bari, author of the book Raise Your Vibes. She offers us some shifts in perception, as well as a morning practice that takes less than a minute and could change your whole day and probably your life. Don't believe me? Try it for yourself by doing what Athena suggests as the first thing to do in the morning. Mind you, it can be done any time of the day, but first thing in the morning and last thing at night is good. Raise your vibes and bring light back to your world. This article was written by Athena Berry, author of the book Raise Your Vibes. There are events in life that change the course of how we interact with others, view ourselves, carry out daily tasks, and communicate with loved ones. The pandemic of 2020 has certainly been a game-changer. As the world emerges into the new normal, many of us wonder what that will look like. We've had an amazing silver lining to this storm cloud, the opportunity to pause and reflect, do the self-care practices many of us have put off for years, manifest and meditate, take our health into our own hands, and do some serious soul-searching for our divine purpose in this life. With lockdowns and huge shifts to daily activities, we've had a chance to turn in and tune in to what drives our souls. Suddenly, the little things in life like looking up at the moon, taking long baths, clearing away clutter, journaling out our goals and wishes, and reconnecting with loved ones have captured our hearts. This change in focus has been long overdue and a welcome shift in the collective consciousness. All of these little things and the spotlight on health have allowed us to see and search for what we can do on our own time to raise our own vibration and stay healthy.
We now know how stress releases hormones in the physical body, wreaking havoc on our energetic system. Imagine what positive thought can do for you emotionally, physically, and spiritually. However you choose to begin your journey in healing, take your power back in a world seemingly gone mad. Learn how to shift your own energy and mindset to one of love, happiness, and vitality. With something as simple as a shift in vibration, you too will see your lessons as blessings. Bringing Light Back to Your World So, how do you see the silver lining in the dark and bring that light back to your world? What better than starting with a little candle you've had tucked away in a drawer? Or putting an extra birthday candle to new use? Intention candles are a beautiful way to not only symbolically and literally bring light to your world, but as little beacons of light to send your intentions, wishes, and dreams out to the universe. The color of your candle can bring in that extra touch of magic, too, but for now, use what you have on hand. Carve your name and your wishes, love, healing, money, self-love, a new job, into the wax, claiming your wish, and as you light the candle, hold your intention in mind. Set a crystal you love next to it for that extra bit of energy. And if it's a large candle, you can relight it for your meditations anytime you want. You can make this as ceremonial or quick as you like. Intention is the key. Do you have bay leaves in your kitchen cabinet? These little herbs are wonderful for setting your wishes ablaze too. Write down your wish and light it with a match, lighter, or even the stovetop. Let it burn in a fire-safe dish or pot near a window or outside to let the energy of your wish rise up and out to the universe. It's always wonderful to remember to take a moment of gratitude after any energy practice we hope you have for the time you've been given to manifest, and its to the universe for hearing you, and for, for yourself years, for allowing this moment to make your wishes real in the present. And new possibilities with our readers Soul all over searching. the world. For more inspiration, well before visit the pandemic, I was given an opportunity to do Thank my you. own soul searching, locked down in recovery from major back surgery. After living with debilitating pain for 16 years, it finally came to a head, and I was quite literally stowed away in my healing room. I didn't realize at the time I myself would be healing in this space. Much like the pandemic, it was a struggle at first, isolating, lonely, and full of tears, pain, and fear. But during this time of reflection and healing, I found this alone time to be a gift, a silver lining. I took my power back with Reiki and energy healing tools. I grew new bone and a stronger back than ever before, created shower meditations, vision boards, raised my vibration, and opened my heart and soul to the wonders and gifts the universe offers so graciously once we know how to connect. My three children had the gift of a new mom full of life, 
fun, and energy. New Gift of Wellness I used this new gift of wellness to help loved ones overcome the chains of cancer and clients from around the world release grief, overcome anxiety, and raise their vibration. I am honored to share with you the gift of energy healing, grateful to channel my energy and tools into a space that can serve as a light to those living without hope, embarking on a spiritual path, and overcoming life struggles. I welcome you to the world of energy healing that you too may take your health and well-being into your own hands, creating a life you love and can feel proud of. Every journey begins with one step forward. Let's start this one with our best foot forward by creating your own gratitude practice. This powerful vibration can bring even the darkest moments back to the light. Gratitude is one of the best and easiest things you can do for yourself. When you begin, pause within, or finish your day being in a state of gratitude, your entire world shifts into the positive. Showing gratitude for the blessings in your life each day does two things. It raises your vibration and helps you move forward from a place of love. Vibration Shift We all tend to focus on our worries and our troubles, stressing ourselves out before anything even happens, or worse, getting lost in the midst of them. Imagine how different your life will look when you focus on the positive things in your life. Take a moment out of your day to list off three things you're grateful for and watch as your entire vibration shifts to the positive. Empower yourself to live a magical life with the tools to balance your chakras, manifest positive change, connect with angels, and enjoy a life you love. We're all connected, and when you are healthy and happy, everyone around you will vibrate higher. Let's all come back to the world better than we left it. Lessons learned, loved ones nourished, self-care a new priority. Shift your own energy and mindset to one of love, happiness, and vitality. With something as simple as a shift in vibration, you too will see your lessons as blessings. Let 2021 be the year we all live healthier, happier, and raise our vibes. Practicing Gratitude Every day before I do anything else, I take a moment to give thanks for all the wonderful things, people, and events in my life. I get to wake up feeling amazing, open to the possibility and opportunities to make my world even better. I have three kids to get ready for school in the morning, so I totally understand the urgency to get moving. Yet taking a moment to pause and give thanks is still my number one priority. After all, a happy parent is what every child needs in their life. So, forget all those stresses for a moment and put gratitude at the forefront of your mind. Start with the little things. They say these are the things that count, after all. Close each gratitude ritual with thank you as an acknowledgement and a conclusion. 
Whether you're saying thank you to yourself, God, or the universe doesn't matter so much as the intention. Morning Practice As soon as you open your eyes, you can begin. Before you do anything else, use the bathroom, look at your phone, or get out of bed, lay there and take a moment to name three to five different things you are grateful for. You can, of course, add in more, but this is a beautiful starting point, especially if you're short on time, which in the beginning you'll feel like you are. Begin with the words, I am so grateful for each thing you list and finish the ritual with a simple thank you. You might say, I am so grateful for my health. I am so grateful for my friends. I am so grateful for coffee. And then finish the ritual with a simple thank you. This article was written by Athena Bari, author of the book Raise Your Vibes, Energy Self-Healing for Everyone. We continue our journey of empowerment with Joseph Chilton Pierce, author of The Crack in the Cosmic Egg and also The Magical Child. Joe reveals to us in Transforming the Given, Dancing Through the Crack, the powers of suggestion, of possibility thinking, and of reversibility thinking. He helps us discover our astonishing capacities as well as our self-inflicted limitations, both needed discoveries on our path of empowerment. Transforming the Given Dancing Through the Crack This article was excerpted from the book The Life and Insights of Joseph Chilton Pierce Astonishing Capacities and Self-Inflicted Limitations. Uri Geller, for those readers who did not follow this minor, major comedy, was an Israeli entertainer who could apparently bend metal without touching it, make broken or stopped watches run for short periods, and occasionally make an object disappear, and he displayed undeniable extrasensory perception. Interested researchers tested Geller's abilities at the Stanford Research Institute in California. The tests were conducted by only one of the dozens of nearly autonomous departments making up this complex, 3,000 employees. But those connected with the investigation, which went on for months, were convinced that the Geller effect was genuine. Papers stating this opinion were published and a storm of protest broke out for academic dogma was brought into question. So Geller's discrediting was undertaken. Soon, we Americans found out, to the disappointment of some and to the relief of others, that Geller was a fraud, a charlatan, a cheat. And the show goes on. Then a funny thing happened. 
Geller went to England in late 1973 to perform his fork-bending stunts on television for the British Broadcasting Company. Geller had observed that people in his audience occasionally had keys bend in their pockets, rings twist and break on their fingers, and so on, while he was doing similar things on stage. The notion grew that perhaps Geller could operate through people and maybe even at long distance. Or perhaps other people might possess the same odd ability he did. On the English television show, Geller invited all those people out there in television land to join him, to participate in his metal bending by holding forks or spoon themselves to see if the phenomenon might be repeated. Some 1,500 reports flooded the BBC, claiming that forks, spoons, and anything handy had indeed bent, broken, moved about there in the homes of Britain. Surely such hysterical claims are often noted, and no validity can be granted such business at all. The funny thing was that the vast majority of the claimants were between the ages of seven and fourteen, the period of suggestibility and concrete operational thinking. During the same period, and operating within his own circuit, Matthew Manning, an English teenager, had been doing Geller-type acts since experiencing a poltergeist seizure at eleven years of age. Dr. Brian Josephson, of the prestigious Cavendish Laboratories at Cambridge University, where DNA's double helix was born, and winner of the 1973 Nobel Prize in Physics and a principal in the investigation of young Manning, said the following. A redefinition of reality and non-reality is needed now. End of quote. In times past, respectable scientists would have nothing to do with psychic phenomena. Many of them still won't. I think that the respectable scientists may find they have missed the boat. The Power of Suggestion The full extent of the power of suggestion has just barely been touched upon. Whether or not Geller was a fraud, then, is beside the point. We have stumbled on a potential that eclipses the investments and institutions of our culture. Creative logic has been glimpsed. A new aspect of concrete operational thinking has opened. The key to the logic of survival has opened into plain view. No one involved in Geller effects has the slightest idea how the phenomena occur. No more than the Ceylonese understand how they walk on fire. Geller effects take place without a person's doing anything and often without a person even willing anything to happen. Concrete operational forms of reversibility thinking are not necessarily conscious or controllable. From age 7 to about age 14 or 15 is the period the biological plan prepares for this learning and development. Uri Geller reports his first phenomena of this sort occurred when he was seven. The phenomena broke into Matthew Manning's life at age 11. 
Yet, precisely at this point of the reversibility of the ordinary flow of assimilation accommodation, the academic stronghold rises to reject the phenomena. Mind-brain, a one-way receptor of information? The entire history of Western man rests on the unquestioned assumption that the mind-brain is a one-way receptor of information from its world, designed only to interpret and react in adaptive ways to this information. And the only adaptive ways academically recognized and allowed are those using mechanical devices or ineffectual muscular defense stances. This institutionalized belief that the mind has absolutely no influence over or relation to its world except through dominating tools has now created a nuclear terror reducing everyone to total impotence and fate. We deny our true nature at our peril because such denial always creates a demonic counter-energy of destruction. Dr. Joel Witten of Toronto in his work with Matthew Manning, suggests that psychic functions are not random gifts or space-age abilities, but, and I quote, an innate function and ability in Homo sapiens that probably goes back to the earliest history of man. Perhaps our myths are correct, and our problem is one not of evolving a higher mentality, but of reclaiming our lost state. Transforming the Given, Dancing Through the Crack Ernest Hilgard of Stanford University found that children become highly susceptible to suggestion at age 7. This suggestibility peaks around age 8 to 11 and fades around age 14. At 7, the brain can construct concepts of imaginative ideas or possibilities that apply to the immediate reality. The Balinese child knows, without thinking about it, that the fire will not burn her because she sees the other dancers and knows that they do not get burned. She knows that by imitating their body gestures, she too will have their powers over the world and go unharmed. This is what she has unconsciously practiced in imitative play for years. Thus, she bends some aspect of the world to her desire, not by some intellectual knowing of how to manipulate information, but by the same kind of automatic work within her brain that makes all conceptual growth and change possible. Her system operates on the incoming information through a combination of patterns, those from the world of cause and effect, and those from the idea system of her models. Rational Worldview Threatened by Reversibility Thinking A man came to a magical child seminar as a result of an experience that had unnerved him and threatened his academic and rational worldview. His eight-year-old son was whittling with a knife, slipped, and severed the arteries in his left wrist. Following an instant's panic at the sight of the spurting blood, the father, as if in a dream, seized his screaming son's face, looked into his eyes, and commanded, Son, let's stop that blood. 
The screaming stopped. The boy beamed back and said, Okay! And together they stared at the gushing blood and shouted, Blood, you stop that! And the blood stopped. In a short time, the wound healed, and the father's world almost stopped as well. He knew disorientation and confusion. He couldn't account for his own actions or the words he had heard himself speak, and he surely couldn't account for the results. He didn't understand that the child is biologically geared to take reality cues from the parent. He didn't know of the high suggestibility of the eight-year-old, of concrete operational thinking, or that at his age his son was peculiarly susceptible to ideas about physical survival. But some part of him did know and broke through in the moment of emergency. All the son needed, of course, was the suggestion and the support. The creative logic unfolding during this late childhood period can be summed up as reversibility thinking, an ability that Piaget calls the highest act of human intelligence, but sadly the rarest. Reversibility thinking is, to use Piaget's description, and I quote, the ability of the mind to entertain any state in a continuum of possible stages as equally valid and return to the point from which the operation of mind begins. End of quote. A simpler statement would be, reversibility thinking is the ability to consider any possibility within a continuum of possibilities as true, knowing that you can come back to where you started from. At this point, our Western logic breaks down before an irresolvable paradox. To us, you can't have it both ways. You can't dance on the coals without even a blister, while beneath those coals, pigs and pineapple or whatever are roasting. Frozen in our no-man's-land of confusion between world and reality, having lost the best of both worlds, the organization and the extent of our logic is either-or. Between the either and the or lies a rigorously excluded middle that we Westerners feel we must maintain or else our whole semantic universe will collapse into chaos, as in fact it might. And through that excluded middle, ignorant of our logical niceties, the little Balinese child blithely dances. Renewing the Promise All our creativity, then, has so far been a combination of formal and concrete thinking, and this is surely one of the great combinational forms available to us. But with due respect, awe, and wonder for this kind of creation, I would point out that it is limited, nevertheless, to the concreteness of its medium. The mature intelligence should be able to interact with the possibilities of the living earth. The biological plan might go underground in this strange semantic reality of ours, but it's impossible for it to be extinguished. Our lives are filled with cues concerning real needs. The father who was suddenly moved to join his son in stopping the flow of blood had somehow broken through 
the noise level of his ordinary anxiety and followed the subtle signals of his body. A certain risk seems inherent in this kind of action, though, because it leads into unpredictable territory. Indeed, we have historically referred to this kind of non-ordinary response as left-handed thinking, because the right hemisphere of the brain, which runs the left hand, seems the repository for this kind of effect. Cultures have always represented this left hand as the sinister, dark, and evil, largely because of its unpredictability. Had that father followed the predictable path of reaction, an entire chain of predictable forces would have been enacted. Perhaps the sympathetic rescue squad and dramatic sirens wailing, sympathetic police and dramatic hospital emergency room, sympathetic doctors and nurses, and maybe even the drama of the local news media and a human interest story. Surely, vast machinery would lie idle if left-handed thinking were to be employed habitually. Our anxiety conditioning leads us to believe this left-hand process is tantamount to death itself, and our conditioning sets up buffers between this dark unknown and our ordinary awareness, which is sustained by verbal feedback and that which is right. Attuned to this noise, we lose our communication with the subtle power of the rest of our being. To become quiet and respond accordingly to these subtle signals seems to be the equivalent of giving up our last defense. Yet, the moment we can drop such defenses, even for a brief time, and respond to our left hand, we shift matrix from anxiety to the primary process within. This article was excerpted from the book The Life and Insights of Joseph Chilton Pierce Astonishing Capacities and Self-Inflicted Limitations A whole world of possibility thinking exists in the world of healing. While we've seen tremendous discoveries and developments in modern medicine, there's a whole internal world we can explore without the external assistance of doctors, etc. This is the healing potential in our own body. Barry Grunland and Patricia Kay, authors of Cell Level Meditation, introduce us to a relationship with ourselves and offer us a short guided meditation to get in touch with our liver cells in experiencing our cells on life's healing journey. Our cells are the building blocks, the foundation of our body. So what better place to apply the tools of reversibility thinking, suggested in the previous article by Joseph Chilton Pierce, than to work with ourselves to create a healthy body and vibrant life. Experiencing Ourselves on Life's Healing Journey This article was written by Patricia Kay and Barry Grunland and excerpted from their book, Cell 
level meditation. The article begins with a quote. Go sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. End of quote. This was ascribed to one of the desert fathers, a Christian monks in the Seti's desert of Egypt. Life, by its very nature, is alive. Because it is alive, it's not just responding in a set, mechanical way, but rather it is responsive to what is needed and helpful and useful. Cells might be considered as an archetypal template for life. They are the smallest unit of life. Once they are given a job, a function, they take on an identity and leap into the cell community as participants in life. The noble cells of your body can rest, take stock of the situation, and create solutions to problems. They can transform. They use creative solutions. In addition to their versatility, what makes the cells of the body so successful is their ability to cooperate. Sounds like we should be taking classes from them. Getting down to the cells. Yes, we can get all the way down to the cells. In fact, anything that you are doing or thinking is also in some way going on in the cells, no? It's already happening, and you can learn to shift into states of awareness in which you can be co-creative and engaged with what's already going on. A woman I know got to the bone cells, and what most surprised her is that they were doing their bone cell thing, independently of what she thought or said or did. We might say, the bone cells already know what to do. Thankfully so. Everything ultimately is a pattern of energy in expression. The manifest form, if you travel into it, is made of smaller parts. The smaller parts are made of even smaller parts, and so on, until you get down to a level where there is only the sensation of something, like vibrancy itself, arising from the emptiness. The expression of the energy of a substance running at a certain rate is solid. At another rate, it's liquid, and at another, it's a gas. Every known substance has its parameters, temperature, rate, and rhythm, and how it behaves under different circumstances. Similarly, different types of cells in the body have their own signature pattern of color, movement, speed, sound, or energetic frequency. Muscle cells have a different kind of pattern than bone cells and they feel different than bone cells in some kind of subjective way. The cells are working along with their own programming, and if you are suffering from an illness, you might find a sense of unease or disturbance when you get there. How do we work with that? Breathe to it. Experience it as it comes to you and be with it. Become it. Be responsive. Just keep breathing. Stay curious and simply wonder how to engage the experience fully, looking for clues. It seems counterintuitive to become the disease, 
but you may have a sense that you will find the road to healing mysteriously revealed to you by doing just that. Whatever you can imagine opens possibilities that can birth into physical reality. Seeing the Cellular Picture Now, because I have worked in healthcare, I've had to study such things as biology and anatomy and physiology. So I've seen the pictures of cells in textbooks and under the microscope. However, the first time I saw the cell membrane in cell meditation, I was quite moved. It was much more dynamic than I had imagined and beautiful. A few years later, I was delighted to see a photo of a cell membrane taken with the use of an electron microscope. I was excited to have my vision corroborated. A couple of times I've had something like this happen, a beautiful confirmation. Once I got to a structure in my body that somehow I identified as a virus. It was very resistant to being in relationship with the other cells. In fact, it felt very other or foreign to me. And it was quite a rascal. A few weeks later, I went to pick up a friend at a doctor's appointment. While I was in the waiting room, waiting for her, I picked up a magazine. And there, on the cover, was a picture of the virus I'd seen taken under an electron microscope. Sometimes, actually most of the time, I've noticed that the cellular picture comes as a metaphor. For example, one patient I work with has some problems with her cholesterol levels, and when she went in, she described to me some pipes. As her description became more vivid and dynamic, I realized she was in the cardiovascular system working on the plaque on the wall of blood vessels that needed some attention. Other times, some people I've worked with have gone into the structure of the cell. There's a kind of geometry with shapes, color, movement, and vibrancy. Participating in the harmony and beauty of this underlying pattern is an experience of great delight. The Inner Experience I know people who have a disciplined Qigong practice. Qigong is a centuries-old system of coordinated body posture and movement, breathing, and meditation used for the purposes of health, spirituality, and martial arts training. Through a focused use of their whole bodies, people who practice this discipline learn a sense of rhythm and flow of movement that brings harmony to the body and peace to the mind. These very people bring their Qigong practice into the cells, where they sense a micro-movement at a more subtle level of inner experience. When a cell within a tissue, within an organ, is not functioning well, there's a subjective experience that something is off. The people who have this practice become very good at moving their awareness within and entering into the ongoing dialogue with their embodied selves. They practice inner qigong, reminding the cells of their innate rhythm and harmony. And the potential that lies within you may astound you. The cells of the body are quite versatile noble, and capable of transformation, just like you are. 
Stem cells are cells that haven't been programmed yet for a specific job. We become aware that the cells turn over and that some cells can become any other cell. A cell can go into neutral entropy. It can transform. It becomes the new cell. Breathe with it and allow it to have the experience of itself as a new cell with itself. Then, let it have the experience of the whole. Barry offers us a wonderful breathing meditation for our liver. And here it is. Become aware of the liver cell. Breathe to it. Become aware of the experience of your liver cell. Breathe. Let the liver cell experience that you are there. Let the liver cell experience itself as itself. Open the panorama. Breathe. Let the liver cell experience itself as part of the community of liver cells. Breathe. Now let the community experience itself as a community. Breathe. And now let the community of liver cells experience their part of the larger community of the whole body. Breathe. Breathe. This article was written by Patricia Kay and Barry Grundland and excerpted from their book, Cell Level Meditation, The Healing Power in the Smallest Unit of Life. Now, of course, we all know that there are challenges along the way, one of which is losing a loved one. And this is a situation where we definitely can feel powerless as our emotions flood our being and life. Dr. Stephen Gardner shares with us the empty wheelchair, wrestling with grief after the loss of a son. He takes us on his journey of grieving, allowing us to see that acceptance of where we are is the first step in any experience. Whatever we are experiencing, first we accept or acknowledge that it is happening. Then we are free to see clear to our next step, at our own pace, following our heart and inner guidance. The Empty Wheelchair Wrestling with Grief After the Loss of a Son This article was written by Dr. Stephen Gardner, the author of the book Jabberwocky, Lessons of Love from a Boy Who Never Spoke. Most of us have experienced the eerie feeling that goes with handling the personal possessions of a loved one who has passed away. Some very mundane things can produce surprisingly poignant reactions. Such was the case when our son passed away at age 22 from complications of cerebral palsy and epilepsy. Graham's mom and I, 
knew we might be carrying sentimentalism to the extreme, but many of the things that our son left behind became nothing short of sacred to us. Sorting through Graham's dresser one day, I teared up at the sight of his hairbrush. The little wooden stick with its crooked yellow bristles was suddenly sacred because it had groomed his satiny hair. A crinkled tube of Tom's silly strawberry toothpaste and his royal mandarin cologne were suddenly precious artifacts. The scents from those toiletries evoked Graham in the deepest parts of my brain. Clothes, we discovered, were uniquely sacred because they'd physically enveloped the person we adored. Graham's soft winter scarf, his down ski jacket, the tassel loafers he sported on special occasions, the Teva sandals he wore on trips to the Caribbean, were all sacred now. His Life is Good t-shirts were particularly so, because they'd fit his torso, and his message of hope, so perfectly. And then there were the sneakers. I'd collected them throughout his life, to mark the passage of time, the way some families create pencil marks on the door frames of bedroom closets. There was particular pathos in the sneakers because Graham stood proudly in them when assisted by a parent or friend, but the souls never had the chance to become worn down by walking or running. When the time is right to let go. It was unfathomable that Graham's familiar belongings were sitting dispassionately in drawers and closets, waiting for the right moment to be given away, when the beautiful person who wore them was gone. But, the summer after Graham's passing, it thrilled me to see our matching yellow life jackets back in use, worn by the campers and counselors of a place called Camp Jabberwocky. In that magical sleepover summer camp for children and adults with disabilities, on the storybook island of Martha's Vineyard, my heart was full as I watched resilient people paddling and laughing in the vineyard Haven Harbor. At home, Graham's wheelchair occupied its old spot in the dining room for many months, heartbreakingly empty. The chair became a nearly holy object, the ultimate symbol of a life lived with incomprehensible dignity. It took a long time before I was ready to let it go and donate it to Crotched Mountain, the school and children's hospital that Graham had attended in southern New Hampshire. Time has passed, but even now, we part with our son's remaining possessions unhurriedly. It felt wonderful, very recently, to donate Graham's cushiony sheepskin mattress pad to a friend who had become bedridden with cancer. But I plan to keep the turquoise necklace that I gave him many years ago as a symbol of healing, at least for now. Even elevators can be sacred. I flew to Bermuda after Graham's passing to write some stories for a memoir about him. I chose to stay in the same hotel where he and I had spent a singularly joyful week together. For the first time, I was struck by the elegant features of a vintage Otis elevator car that we'd ridden daily during our time there. An ornate chandelier, polished brass handrails and inlaid marble on the floor. One morning I asked the elevator, out loud, if it knew how lucky it was to have once held the most special of all people within its mahogany walls. If you were to ask me, that classic Otis elevator car is a sacred thing now. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. As a physician, I've learned to be humble when counseling people about grief. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. And there's no correct timetable for it, either. Each one of us has the right to deal with loss in his or her own way. Sometimes, there's an obvious trigger for a spike in sadness, like a birthday, but it tends to pop up unpredictably too. If grieving goes on for a long time or is debilitating, I encourage people to ask for the thoughts of a mental health provider.
Thankfully, there's much less of a stigma about this, than just a few years ago. From my own experience, I can recommend a few simple ways that we can help ourselves, when grief becomes persistent or severe. I made up a mnemonic device to make them easy to remember. Graces. Giving. Engaging in an act of compassion or charity, will always make us feel better. Reconnecting. Getting together with friends and family, is frequently therapeutic. Laughing really helps. Appearances. This might sound frivolous, but doing something that makes us look better in the mirror can be beneficial. This can be as simple as getting a great haircut or a new outfit. Creativity. Just about any expression of creativity, from scrapbooking, to drawing, to cooking, can ease grief. For me, taking and editing photos takes my mind off everything else. Exercise. We all know about the benefits of exercise. Getting outside, and doing just about anything that raises the heart rate, three times a week, qualifies. It's even better when we can do it with other people, like playing racket sports. Spirituality. This one is different for every person. But whatever makes us feel connected, to something bigger, is fine. A walk in the woods works well for many people, and so does spending time in houses of worship. I tried these simple strategies for months, and my heart still broke at the sight of Graham's empty chair. In time, however, I was able to feel a sense of joy when I thought about a stranger riding in it, and being loved in it, as much as we loved our beautiful boy. This article was written by Dr. Stephen Gardner, the author of the book, Jabberwocky, Lessons of Love from a Boy Who Never Spoke. The article was narrated by A.I., Artificial Intelligence. One of the tools or attitudes that can serve us well on our journey of self-discovery and self-empowerment is the attitude of trust and hope. This doesn't mean that we cross our fingers and put our head in the sand. On the contrary, we acknowledge our situation, then we choose trust or hope as our foundational attitude. Christy Hugstad, author of the book Be You, Only Better, shares her insights in Trust and Hope Spring Eternal, How to Get Started. Once we kickstart our journey with trust and hope, which could also be known as possibility thinking, reversibility thinking, etc., then we can move forward to putting into practice the ways and means of discovering who we are and reclaiming our power to create a better life, not just for ourselves, but for the planet as a whole. Pam Younghans, in her weekly astrological journal, helps us navigate universal energies so that we can flow with, rather than against, the powerful currents that are our present reality. Sometimes, all it takes is an insight into the underlying energy to align ourselves with it. Knowing what is in the air helps us prepare ourselves to best navigate the currents and know how to handle the hurdles in our journey. 
The theme of empowerment also arises in this week's Planetary Energies, and I quote, For each of us, we have an opportunity to see how we direct our energy when we feel disempowered or defensive, unable to control a situation to our liking. If anger seems like an appropriate response, we will need to find an outlet for that assertive impulse, one that adds to the expansion of light rather than increasing the shadow. End of quote. Thus, we need to remember that empowerment does have a light side and a shadow side. For the advancement of our life's journey, we need to choose power with love rather than the other energies which do not have love at their center. In all our discoveries, challenges, experiences, the universe is on our side, helping us to become self-empowered. I know sometimes it doesn't look like the universe is supportive, but those are usually the times when we're fighting the current rather than going with the flow of the current planetary energies. Greetings. This is astrologer Pam Younghans, and here is my forecast for the week of May 31st to June 6th. 2021. In this time between eclipses, it can be hard to find our bearings in physical reality. Life seems a bit surreal throughout this two-week period. It may feel as if we're floating above the timeline, and we have a sense of waiting for something to occur for the other shoe to drop. And of course, we are in somewhat of a wait-and-see mode, as we anticipate the second major event of this eclipse season, the partial solar eclipse on June 10th. We are also moving through the waning half of the lunar cycle now, when our work is less about forward motion and more about review and release, the understanding of what we need to discard and what shifts we are ready to make will deepen once we enter the last quarter phase of the moon this Wednesday. It may sound like a quieter week is about to unfold, but other planetary activity on the calendar tells us otherwise. The planet Mars, namesake of the god of war, is in a cardinal T-square configuration with Eris and Pluto this week. The red planet will be exactly square disruptive Eris on Wednesday and opposite demanding Pluto on Saturday. Each of these hard aspects is a strong energy by itself, but it's also important to know that Mars will be activating the influence of the ongoing Pluto-Eris square. That table-turning aspect has been working with us for at least two years now. It was exact three times in 2020, and will perfect twice more in 2021, before the planets move on and the tensions slowly begin to ease. We're learning a lot about Eris as we experience the effects of this Pluto-Eris square. As always, when a new planetary object is discovered, astrologers closely watch how its influence manifests over the years and decades that follow, deepening our understanding of the newcomer's intentions and effects. We also take into account the symbolism of the name it was given. It seems clear at this point that Eris, while named for the goddess of discontent, has far more depth than the superficially selfish behavior of the mythic goddess. While it is true that Eris seems to stir up trouble wherever it goes, that trouble at times has higher purposes behind it. Just like the other planetary objects in our solar system, Eris has both a higher and a lower vibratory signature. On one hand, we can see the Pluto-Eris square being demonstrated in the all that matters is that I get what I want behaviors that we read about in the news. 
The selfishly motivated side of Eris doesn't seem to care about the impact of its actions on others. When activated by the hard aspect of Pluto, this self-oriented behavior causes significant disruption and even violence. But we also see the higher vibrational side of Eris at work these days. Pluto is the great revealer, and its square to Eris has exposed the great dysfunctions of present-day society. The Pluto-Eris square has pulled back the curtain on social injustice and the misuse of power that until now has been ignored or swept under the rug. While this is a global influence, and all nations and societies are dealing with the energies of the Pluto-Eris square, its effects may be especially apparent in the United States. This nation, as it nears its 245th birthday in July, is in the beginning stages of its first Pluto return. This is often when a country's shadow is exposed so that the darkness can be purged and a rebirth can occur. As Mars triggers this Pluto-Eris square this week, we can expect some upheaval. We'll likely see evidence of the selfish characteristics of Eris. With the dwarf planet in impulsive Aries, it can be especially hard to contain that shadow side if an individual is predisposed to aggressive behavior. There should also be another layer of revelation and response in the areas of social justice and the exploitation of those who have been viewed as somehow less than. Where Eris treads, controversy is sure to follow, and Mars, currently in protective cancer, can quickly erupt in anger and defensiveness if it feels threatened. For each of us, we have an opportunity to see how we direct our energy when we feel disempowered or defensive, unable to control a situation to our liking. If anger seems like an appropriate response, we will need to find an outlet for that assertive impulse, once it adds to the expansion of light rather than increasing the shadow. We also must be careful not to drive someone we disagree with farther into their corner this week. This T-square can be deeply divisive if not handled correctly, as people have their guard up and can be unwilling to soften their stance when challenged. As always, there is other planetary activity this week, although the Mars Eris Pluto T square is by far the strongest influence. Here are the daily aspects with my brief interpretations. Please note that there are no significant aspects that perfect on Friday or Sunday, although those days may be eventful due to the T square. On Monday, Venus is semi square Uranus and sesquiquadrate Saturn. There is discomfort in relationships as we try to stay true to ourselves while also maintaining a longer-term commitment to a friend or loved one. Also on Monday, the Sun is conjunct the North Node. This is an opportunity to align with the higher destiny of humanity, which includes embodying the qualities of open-mindedness and non-judgmental communication. On Tuesday, we have the Sun sesquiquadrate Pluto. This represents a potential power struggle. Be careful of trying to manipulate situations or using intimidation due to a fear of change. On Wednesday, the last quarter phase of the moon begins at 12.24 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Also on Wednesday, the sun is sextile Chiron. This is an opportunity for healing and acceptance based on taking the time to truly listen. Venus enters Cancer on Wednesday. We feel more strongly protective of love stones as Venus journeys through Cancer from June 2nd to 27th, there is a greater need to nurture and be nurtured now, and perhaps a stronger attachment to family.
This is also the day of Mars squaring Eris, which we've talked about above. On Thursday, the Sun is trying Saturn. This is a stabilizing influence that helps us maintain a level of calm objectivity amidst changing circumstances. Also on Thursday, Venus is trying Jupiter. Generosity of heart and compassion help us risk caring deeply for others, opening doors to new relationships. On Saturday, Mercury is square Neptune. This represents some confusion in communications, especially with Mercury now retrograde. This energy is best spent in personal journaling or meditation, rather than trying to express our thoughts concretely to others. This is also the day that Mars is exactly opposite Pluto. If your birthday is this week, this year, in spite of continuing instability in the world, you are able to find your grounding and direction. Time spent in self-care is especially important, as it enhances your confidence and your knowing that you can accomplish whatever you set your mind to. Your communication skills, whether verbally or in writing, are especially useful now as you focus on fulfilling your goals and your higher life purpose. This is astrologer Pam Younghan sending light and love to you this week. Thank you for being with me on this journey. One way to reinforce taking back our power is to be aware of the words we choose and the thoughts we think. The words I am are a lightning rod for whatever follows them. In other words, if you go around saying, I am tired, or I'm not able to do something or the other, then whatever you are saying after the I am is empowered every time you say it or think it. To reclaim our power, we must work on all levels, mind, body, and spirit. It's all connected, and even more than that, it's all one. You can't heal your physical body if you haven't healed your emotional body, and vice versa. And while we may have been told that others can heal us or fix us or save us, this is incorrect. They may assist in the process, providing tools needed or a bit of a jump start, but we are in charge of our body, our mind, our experience. We must acknowledge that we are in charge of ourselves. We make the choices that affect our today and our tomorrows. And that is the great news. We don't have to wait for a knight or a lady in shining armor, an extraterrestrial to beam us up, or for Jesus to come and save us. We can save ourselves. As a matter of fact, we are the only ones who can. We have the power to make the changes needed in our own body, in our own life, and on our own planet. Wishing you a wonderful, joyful, healthy, and loving week. We hope you have enjoyed this week's newsletter and its featured articles. For over 30 years, we at Inner Self have shared new attitudes and new possibilities with our readers all over the world. For more inspiration, visit us at InnerSelf.com. Thank you. <music>